From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Kendall Seesmeyer, your host. Free speech on campus, book bans, education gag orders, the overturn of affirmative action, the resignation of former Harvard president Claudine Gay. All of these issues center on one hot-button topic. Diversity, equity, and inclusion in education and in the workplace. It's known as DEI. Sometimes you hear DEI initiatives. And it represents an institution, organizations, or entities' commitment to changing the culture to ensuring full participation and consideration of all types of groups. DEI has become a huge focus after our so-called racial reckoning of 2020 brought demands for racial justice to the top of institutional priorities. From schools to Fortune 500 companies to the film industry, DEI efforts had a steady surge until they didn't. We turn now to the backlash against so-called DEI programs. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, he signed a bill that defunds diversity, equity, and inclusion programs in state colleges and universities. I think the way it's actually practiced, it stands for discrimination, exclusion, and indoctrination, and it's wrong. We will get critical race theory out of our schools, out of our military, and out of every part of our federal state. At local governments. More and more companies are cutting their diversity, equity, and inclusion programs. The burgeoning anti-DEI movement, also coined the War on Woke, has gone from a once fringe conservative crusade to a political machine. Already this year, about three dozen bills restricting DEI efforts, like critical race theory, have been proposed in states across the country, with more likely to emerge. Need we again mention the overturn of affirmative action? But how did we go from a public seemingly committed to DEI to one that denounces it in the span of just a few years? It's always going to be cyclical. So while many people in the culture came to concepts like systemic racism and critical race theory for the first time in 2020, and that they became these sort of new corporate causes in the way that say, sustainability or ESG was a couple years before that. That's Northwestern University political science professor Alvin B. Tillery. He's also the director of the University Center for the Study of Diversity and Democracy and a corporate DEI consultant. And before we dive any deeper into the anti-DEI machine, I think we need a brief lesson on what DEI and CRT even mean in the first place. Pay attention. We won't be testing you. But you're going to hear these acronyms a lot throughout this episode. When it comes to DEI, you can think of it as an umbrella term with many means of working toward it. Diversity, equity, and inclusion are values. They're sort of uh, based on the fact that we are a multiracial society. We have a diverse population uh, that encompasses, you know, different ethnic and racial groups. And for most of our history from... 1787 until 1968, we were a formalized racial caste system. DEI are tenets of progress used to remedy the effects of this nation's history of racial injustice. The first, diversity, involves a variety of people with different identities on the basis of race, ethnicity, nationality, gender, sexuality, disability, and class. We talk about diversity 
instead of racial justice, only because the white men who were in charge of the Supreme Court at that time thought that it would be more palatable to whites in a changing society to talk about diversification instead of racial justice. Equity, not to be confused with equality, means ensuring fair and just treatment to everyone. Think of welfare programs or affirmative action. These are efforts to lessen disparities on who gets certain opportunities. Inclusion simply means that people can feel accepted and valued by an institution and that they can fully engage in whatever happens there. Next is CRT. CRT is an acronym for critical race theory. Critical race theory is a legal framework that has been used in higher education to trace the impact of slavery through institutions to today. And so you see the lingering impact of slavery and how American life and American institutions were structured to support that systemic racism. That's Leah Watson, the ACLU's very own senior staff attorney with the Racial Justice Program, who you'll also hear from throughout this episode. Leah is a former teacher. She says that CRT has been co-opted by a vocal, largely conservative minority and expanded intentionally to misrepresent classroom discussions of race and culturally responsive teaching. She'll explain more about this later. For now, I hope these definitions were helpful. Alvin, back to you in the year 2020. I never believed that we were going to just have this reckoning and fix everything. I mean, this is not a plausible hypothesis that you could fix 400 years of racialized inequality with a kind of corporate training program, right? And I I said that to a lot of CEOs that I was helping in that period. So the tenor of the conversation changed. I think people wanted to read Ibram Kendi and read Derrick Bell. And so, you know, people were reading and learning that critical race theory, you know, it just says four things, really. Race is socially constructed, true. The Constitution's a pro-slavery document in three places, true. Racism is going to hang around, true. And the only time we get big changes is when dominant white elites in society see it as in their interest to support (laughs) marginalized communities, right? And so when 2020 happened, I thought, this is great. We can now talk about these concepts, but there will inevitably be a snapback. Um, That's just the way that American society works when it involves expanding rights to marginalized groups. There's always these periods of hope, right? Uh, And so, uh, and then there are these snapbacks. Snapbacks, while disheartening, have been commonplace throughout history. Alvin knows this both from history books and his own life. He stays assured, however, that DEI isn't going anywhere. So I integrated almost every institution that I grew up in in the 1970s, right? Because that was a period of hope, right? And then the 80s came, it was a retrenchment, what we called the racial retrenchment, right? We get corporate DEI programs, frankly, because a bunch of big companies, they get their pants sued off in the 1980s, right? So they start doing this work, not because, oh, they want to be nice, but because, oh, like, they're being sued by women and minorities and, and LGBT. And, and so they, they make it as benign as possible. Let's not talk about justice for these groups. Let's talk about bias. Oh, there's no explicit racism or sexism or homophobia. 
we all just have biases that are programmed into our minds, right? And so, so that's where we were up to the George Floyd moment. George Floyd happens, and we could have a deeper conversation about critical race theory and systemic racism and all of that. The Republican response is just that natural backlash that always happens, right? But I will say DEI is not going anywhere, despite what happened in Florida and Texas because these programs are wildly popular with most Americans. Something on the order of 75% of Americans of all races like their corporate DEI programs and actually want their corporations to do more. While it's great that so many Americans want corporate DEI programs to continue to progress when local, state, and national governments have their say, we've seen an all-out attack on DEI-oriented efforts in education and throughout other publicly funded institutions. What started in Florida with Governor Ron DeSantis' Don't Say Gay and Stop Woke Act, or Texas's anti-critical race theory law, has spread all across the country. Leah has been watching the anti-DEI machine emerge since before 2020, and now she's on the front lines fighting back on these attacks. So in 2020, there was really a moment where people paused and considered racism. Professor Tillery just spoke um, about the importance of the racial reckoning in the workplace, but the Reckoning didn't just happen in the workplace. There was reflection about how all of our American institutions could become anti-racist institutions, particularly to education. As there's social progress, there's always immediate retrenchment, as we talked about. And almost immediately in the face of these commitments to anti-racism and racial justice to embrace students of color in classrooms in a system that has never fully embraced them, to be honest. Conservatives coordinated an attack alleging that critical race theory was infiltrating schools. They started to create educational gag orders, primarily in the form of legislation, but also in the form of executive orders, school board rules, and attorney general opinions that prohibit discussion of racism and sexism particularly systemic racism and sexism in classes. And so the first educational gag order really built on an executive order 13950 that was signed by President Trump in September of 2020. And this was an executive order that prohibited discussion of eight enumerated concepts deemed to be divisive in workplaces, really in trainings for federal contractors. And so after President Trump signed the executive order, it was challenged in court, struck down on constitutional basis in a preliminary injunction and was rescinded by Biden on the first day of the administration. But it really planted the seed for how to attack conversations that conservatives just frankly did not want to have. So we saw legislation designed to prohibit these concepts and courses. It's called educational gag orders because it limits teachers from having these discussions with students. And legislation was introduced in over 40 states. Laws were passed in over 20 states. These laws were in the K-12 context, but also in higher ed too. And we've seen an increasing focus on higher ed in 2022 and 2023 as a way of limiting the ideas that people learn. 
So the ACLU is very proud to be at the forefront of this fight against classroom censorship. It is unprecedented in many respects. We filed the first challenge to an educational gag order in the country with co-counsel Lawyers Committee under Civil Rights and Schulte Rothens Able. We filed this challenge in Oklahoma to HB 1775, alleging constitutional violations. We also filed a challenge in Florida with the NAACP Legal Defense Fund and Ballard Spar. I should mention that both of these are with the ACLU of Oklahoma, the ACLU of Florida as well. And in that case, we continue to allege constitutional violations in the Florida's educational gag order, which is called the Stop Woke Act. The Stop Woke Act prohibits discussions of systemic racism and sexism in K-12 classrooms, higher education classrooms, and workplaces. In that case, we were able to obtain an order, a preliminary injunction, blocking the state of Florida from enforcing the higher education provisions of the Stop Woke Act. And we are defending or arguing in support of that preliminary injunction before the 11th Circuit currently. Finally, we filed a case in New Hampshire on behalf of K-12 teachers challenging HB2, and that case is proceeding as well. Also on constitutional grounds, there's a number of organizations involved in that case. And so I won't list all of those co-counsel, but we've really been leading this charge from the beginning, setting a framework for challenging these laws on on constitutional grounds, obtaining favorable orders where the laws have been substantively reviewed by courts, and we're continuing to hold the line on what is permissible in classrooms, both in the K-12 and higher education setting. Leah has been busy. The education gag orders she's fighting against and all of the anti-DEI efforts we've mentioned are all a part of this same playbook, drawn up by the same people. But there's one person who is touted as the brains behind this whole operation, and that's conservative activist and journalist Christopher Rufo. Rufo is not a politician, but so many of his ideas have emerged to the forefront of conservative politics. What I'm concerned about and what millions of parents are really concerned about is things that are happening in hundreds of public schools in Illinois and Chicago, uh, where they're teaching children as young as kindergarten that whiteness uh, is the devil. What I've discovered is that critical race theory has become, in essence, the default ideology of the federal bureaucracy and is now being weaponized against the American people. Individual conservatives, primarily Chris Rufo, really manufactured hysteria around critical race theory by utilizing Fox News to deliver reporting that has been, at best, identified to misrepresent the facts, at worst, debunked in some respects. But he's gone on Fox News a few times and stated the government is using critical race theory. It's infiltrated our workplaces and schools Fox News collaborated in creating hysteria by using the term critical race theory more than 3,900 times in 2021, having Rufo on at least 50 times in 2021, and then continuing to stoke concerns using the great replacement theory that any progress by BIPOC people comes at the expense of white people. And we've seen this very dangerous rhetoric resulting in violence against BIPOC communities. And so people felt like something new was happening and it was really bad for their students. Christopher Rufo said, the goal is to have the public read something crazy in the newspaper and immediately think critical race theory. We have decodified the term and will recodify it to annex the entire range of cultural 
constructions that are unpopular with Americans. And I think that quote is just so powerful because it's not about CRT and it's not about DEI. It's really about controlling what people have access to and what is said in our culture. Well, he may seem like the political mastermind of the anti-DEI movement, Alvin says Christopher Rufo's ideas and his movement actually aren't all that original. I don't think that this movement really exists in the hearts and minds of Americans outside of the fringe. It's just that the fringe controls the Supreme Court and they've captured the Republican Party. But let's be clear Their arguments are not new, they're old. (laughs) I mean, they're funded by the same groups uh, who opposed Black people being allowed, my grandparents being allowed to walk in the front door of Woolworths, right? When, When all of that happened in the movement, there were white people there opposing it. So Rufo is, you know, I mean, he has no original thoughts. I mean, the banality of what he's doing It's just really obvious, right? And so, you know, I think that why has it gotten so much attention? Well, they've spent 45 years and billions of dollars to manufacture this movement. And they have unlimited dark money um, to fund things like the Manhattan Institute and Heritage and, you know, Ed Bloom's operation. You know, like they have a bunch of resources and they also have about 25% of the population in the kind of hinterland red states who are rabidly fed this replacement theory, right? So that's how I see it. It's not winning the mainstream argument. It's just that they have the power of the courts behind them. But as Leah just said, she's taking them to task very effectively on First and 14th Amendment grounds. There's such obvious violations. And you still find appellate courts that are siding with you. And so that also shows you that they're not the mainstream, right? So that's my take on it. So Christopher Rufo and his contemporaries have electoral, judicial, and financial resources to their advantage. But they also have another potent weapon that keeps the anti-DEI machine running. Compelling rhetoric. Using deeply entrenched ideas about race to fuel mischaracterizations about what DEI and CRT actually stand for. He's been able to turn the fight against these frameworks into a social debate. Moreover, false promises of what anti-DEI efforts will achieve have been used to drum up support for the movement. Leah helped us understand these misguided arguments. I just want to be clear that these are intentional misrepresentations about DEI and about CRT to serve their purpose. So some of the ways that DEI has been misconstrued One, DEI undermines the diversity of thought and intellectual freedom. DEI efforts make universities more intolerant and narrow. DEI efforts are the antithesis or the opposite of meritocracy. They're efforts that divide Americans and make Black and BIPOC groups feel less welcome. And they're also necessary to preserve some type of justice, competence, progress of science. So what is at stake? with this misrepresentation of DEI is that conservatives are using a bit of a bait and switch approach. They're taking a term that you've probably heard of before, DEI, without defining what they actually mean. The DEI has such a broad range of, includes such a broad range of methods, programs, activities. It could be anything from 
groups that support Black workers and like ESGs and strategies that are designed to increase promotion, the promotion or recruitment retention of workers or students. So they haven't really defined what DEI means. They even use sweeping terms to describe DEI in the legislation they're perpetuating. And they're using DEI as a wedge to attack anything they don't like, whether or not it's related to DEI or not. And I will just point you to a tweet by Congressman J.D. Vance, who used DEI as a reason to invalidate a whole host of things that he didn't like. He invalidated vaccine and immunological science because scientists, according to him, who are telling you to get the vaccine attended institutions that had DEI programs. The scope of what they're trying to take down under the banner of DEI is very broad. And Christopher Rufo said, I've run the same playbook on critical race theory that I've run on DEI bureaucracy and gender ideology. My primary objective is to eliminate DEI from every institution in America. Leah and Alvin have made it clear that the anti-DEI machine is rooted in false narratives. But it doesn't mean that its impacts are any less serious or real. The Supreme Court's decision to overturn affirmative action is proof of that. This decision sparked questions about the future of identity-conscious hiring practices in the corporate sector. If colleges and universities adopt a race-neutral decision-making, will other institutions follow suit? We had Alvin weigh in on this. Is there a chilling effect? I think so. I mean, I think, you know, what we know, as Leah said, the Republican or the right-wing activist groups like Bloom and Miller, like they just kind of threaten everyone with these threat letters. And, you know, the corporate council is always the enemy of DEI. So, oh, oh, we got to shut it down. Like, we got a threat letter. Oh, you know. And so, like, oh, someone's going to sue us, right? And so the CEOs are, are pressured, which you've got that at the top. you got the millennial and Gen Z workers who have had all of this training since, like, junior high school. And they're like, what? Like, you're, wait, what? <laughs> you're shutting it down? And so, and then you've got, like, a lot of population pressure. American population has contracted and it's diversifying, right? And so, so those pressures are countervailing. And then that's before you even get to the wonderful defensive efforts that, say, Leah is leading. It's just not clear to me that this is going to bring down the whole system. And the idea of race neutrality, uh, one thing that I've been pushing uh, in several of the blue states is that, you know, if they want the fealty of Black and Latino and Asian voters— It would be really nice to have some real audit laws for enforcement of the Civil Rights Act. So, you know, like if we're going to transfer the logic of SFFA from Harvard to the Fearless Fund, for example, or to some other business entity, oh, you know, we've got to be race neutral in the process. Okay, so I've worked for you know, 70 companies in the last 10 years, mostly Fortune 500s and, you know, venture capital banks, very elite spaces. When I go into these spaces, the biggest problem in the space that they can't explain to me is the stark overrepresentation of white men in all of the senior management positions. It doesn't make any sense. Women are 52% of the population. They get better grades and test scores than men at every stage. And so I say to them, like, well, what's the merit criteria that you've used to get this way, right? Do you have that? 
because I know activists that are going to say, okay, so if, if race is really out of the system, then we should move to what we call identity blind decision making in workplaces. And you know what? We can do that with AI technology and all these other things. We can blind resumes. We can, you know, do panel hiring, all kinds of things that will frankly disadvantage the most privileged people in our society right now. And they're going to fight like heck to keep those advantages, even though they say, I don't see color. <laughs> We're already operating in a race neutral way. So, you know, strong audit laws, process audit laws, not outcome audit laws. I really see that coming from the blue states. And I think that's going to be very interesting. We're going to really see what merit means. For anti-DEI dissenters, identity-neutral practices are purported as the best solution, the antidote to racial inequity in our society and the most fair means of institutional decision-making. As educational institutions continue to be among the fiercest battlegrounds for the anti-DEI movement, Leah explained why protecting identity-conscious practices is crucial at this time. Research has shown academic scholarship has shown for decades that racial colorblindness does not work. It's a, simply a mass to construe the perpetuation of our current systems of oppression. This is the exact type of instruction that our plaintiffs in Florida are teaching their students that have been recognized as foundational in their disciplines. And now not only has this research been challenged by conservatives without cause, they're seeking to eliminate any efforts to implement and to build upon the understandings that we have. Studies have shown that culturally responsive teaching methods benefit all students. They increase engagement, they increase attendance, they increase retention of material. Students score better on tests because they can connect with their learning to the world. These benefits are felt by BIPOC students or the students whose identity is being featured as a way of bringing them into the learning, but also for white students as well. And the the benefits aren't limited to just academic achievement, but also how students relate to each other and are able to identify and understand and appreciate each other's differences and collaborate together. The, those benefits are something that's really important. And the Supreme Court has recognized that our schools are nurseries of democracy. They are supposed to teach students not only academics, but prepare them for life in a multicultural society. Efforts to thwart these crucial DEI practices are so steeped in politics. And with the presidential election fast approaching, it's important to consider what implications the anti-DEI machine could have. From presidential competitors Donald Trump and Nikki Haley to race dropouts Ron DeSantis and Vivek Ramaswamy, anti-DEI is a cornerstone of Republican campaign strategy and one that we should all keep a close watch over as the race continues. It's all a political tool. I mean, the reason they've captured the courts and all of these things is because they believe that white grievance politics will carry the election for them. That's how they set strategy. And it's fundamentally backward because we know that, like, in the modern day, I'm going to let you in a little secret, most white people don't hold overtly racist ideals. And so that's both heartening and scary, because part of the reason the Republicans are committed to more authoritarian tendencies is because they know 
that they can't win fair and free elections anymore <laughs> because nobody likes their ideas. And so you might say, like, why did Ron DeSantis tank? Ron DeSantis tanked in part because his stance about DEI and anti-wokeness is wildly unpopular, right? It's not surprising that Nikki Haley doesn't want to say that slavery was the cause of the Civil War. She went to a white segregation academy, right? But here's the other side of the coin. Right now, I watch Mr. Biden struggling for re-election with Black voters, talking about Bidenomics and all of these things that he believes should be, you know, oh, I'm going to reduce the kind of, you know, the fees that you pay for overdraft at Chase. Like, oh, yeah, that's going to, like, get Black folks standing five hours at the polls in Atlanta for you. Like, like the three things that my polling, and I'll share it with you, um, show that Black people want the president to talk about are people getting shot, <laughs> CRT bans, and DEI bans. Like, for Black people, these are economic issues. I can't educate my kids to get into a good school, and they can't be themselves. Mr. Biden has been not talking about any of this stuff. I'm not saying that he could win the fealty back of young people necessarily, but at some point you've got to go negative against the other side and start saying what they're clearly going to do. And if you start messaging on that and get away from Bidenomics, whatever that is, you're going to have a chance. All of this can seem really overwhelming, but the good news is that People like you and me actually have a role to play here. I asked Leah what we could do to help support her and her team in this effort and what we could do ourselves. The efforts can honestly feel overwhelming sometimes, but I do think that there are a few things that anyone can do to stand up against what is happening right now. And it's very important to take action right now. The first is to have conversations, talk about how you want students to learn about racism and sexism, how you want to have anti-racist trainings in your office because you don't want to perpetuate systems of oppression. And so having those discussions to just counter the view, because the opposition is so loud with this vocal minority, it can feel like they have the majority of people, and that's not true. And that hasn't ever been supported by polling that has been done or research that has been done. I think another thing is continuing to hold the line. If you are a business owner and your business has a DEI program, keep it. There's a huge chilling effect because of the threat of litigation, high-profile litigation that's been filed. And then the conservatives are saying that DEI is dead or DEI is illegal. They're making representations far broader than any court has made. And so continuing to maintain the programs that are in place now, voice your support for programs that are in place now is really important. Another thing that comes to mind is showing up at those contentious school board meetings and offering the opposite perspective. You know, I think the last time that there was a school board election in my hometown, all of this subject matter came up. It was really interesting to see it hit my small suburb of Chicago, which is just speaks to the fact that it's happening everywhere. And people did 
actually show up and counter the folks who were trying to ban some of this subject matter from being taught in schools. So we can actually show up in opposition or show up in even positive support for the expansion of culturally responsive education in our towns and communities. Absolutely. Showing up, you hit the nail on the head. Show up at your school board meetings, testify when these are bills and not laws to impact a lot of the best advocacy happens before the measure has been passed. So defeating a measure is a a huge victory. And so coordinating with organizations who focus on organizing people around certain issues is certainly very important, as well as asking your elected officials, holding them accountable, calling their office, writing them a letter, asking questions when they are running for election about how they are going to vote on these topics are very important. You mentioned that a lot of these censorious efforts are being pushed as a parents' rights movement, but the reality is most parents don't agree that voice has just been lost. The anti-DEI machine may be controlled by a very vocal minority, but it's not too late for us to be just as vocal, to fight back and dismantle it. Thanks so much to Leah Watson and Alvin Tillery for joining us to add their expertise on this issue. For more context on the ACLU's litigation efforts against education gag orders, check out Leah's law review article, The Anti-Critical Race Theory Campaign, Classroom Censorship and Racial Backlash by Another Name. It'll be linked in our episode description. In the coming weeks, we'll continue to commemorate Black History Month with episodes on pressing issues facing the Black community and conversations with Black organizers, leaders, and advocates. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to At Liberty wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review the show. We really appreciate the feedback. At Liberty is a production of the ACLU, produced by me, Kendall Seesmeyer, and Vanessa Handy. This episode was edited by Matt Boynton. Genesis Macpayo is our intern. Until next week, stay strong, everyone. <laughs>